This is a sobering text of scripture, so I do hesitate to begin this message with anything frivolous. But the surprising end to this passage has reminded me of something vivid from my youth. This week marks the start of football season, and it makes me recall my days, if you can believe it, playing high school football. We were not very good, I mean at all. But I remember one game in particular more than all of the others, mainly because of its surprising end. My sophomore year, my small town team played our rival, which was located about 10 miles to the east of us, and it was our homecoming game. It had been a very tight game, and we were behind by just a few points. I'm a little shaky on that detail. In fact, it looked like our opponent had the game firmly in control, as there was only a couple of seconds left, and we only had the ball with enough time around midfield for just one more play. We had enough time for one more shot, and our quarterback, a fast little guy who avoided tacklers, honestly far better than he threw the football, received the snap, and he was immediately under pressure. He was right-handed, but for some reason, he avoided his tacklers, and he ran to his left. In fact, he nearly fell down doing so, pressing the ball to the ground to hold himself up while he evaded his tacklers, something we found out later on film that should have resulted in the end of the play and the end of the game, too bad for our rivals. Well, he ran to his left, and he was about to be tackled when he heaved the ball across his body all the way down the field. And amazingly, it went just over the reach of their deepest defender, and it was actually caught by one of our teammates who scored, winning the game for our team. And the bleachers were emptied as the entire town, I'm not joking, it's a little community of about 3,000 people, the entire town flooded onto the field. It seemed like, it seemed like this game was completely out of our control, but then it wasn't. Things seemed really dire, hopeless even, but then it wasn't. This morning, I say all that to ask a question. Just how in control is God? Just how in control is God? When things look like he's not at all in control, is he in control? In verse 1, the narrative about Jesus is picked back up, and it does not look like he's in control at all. In fact, the Son of God appears to be on the ropes. He's been arrested, beaten, spit upon, slapped, mocked, and now bound for the Roman governor. God doesn't seem in control whatsoever here. Rather, Jesus seems to be under the full control of some other bad men. Yet in verses 9 through 10, as we're just read, 
we are challenged to see things in a whole new light from a perspective that would actually be hidden from us apart from God's good revelation to us. That God is, in fact, in control and that everything here is going according to His plan. I'd like us to consider three facts from these ten verses today. Number one, Jesus was condemned to death. Number two, Judas was condemned by himself. And number three, the scriptures were fulfilled by God. Fact number one, Jesus was condemned to death. Look with me at verses one and two. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to, the, to Pilate, the governor. Here the verdict of Christ's trial was formally reached. Morning had finally come, and it had been a very long night. Back in chapter 6, if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, after Jesus was arrested, he was led to the high priest's official residence where he stood under trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they were seeking any reason that they could find whatsoever to accuse him of a wrong that they believed was deserving of capital punishment. They hated him and they wanted him gone. And though they found no reason, the high priest, if you remember, eventually commanded Jesus to state openly whether or not he was the Christ, the Son of God himself. And the Lord answered him in truth. In chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus responded and said, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. At this bold but true declaration, the Sanhedrin responded with foolish outrage, and they declared that Jesus had blasphemed against God and therefore deserved death, upon which they began to violently mistreat him. Now, in verse 1, morning has arrived, and they took counsel to formally put Jesus to death. This taking counsel language here implies not merely that they met together again, but that they actually made a final decision regarding Christ's punishment, that in fact, he was to be put to death. Likely here, they also developed their strategy for how to deal with Pilate, the Roman governor, in order to get him to go along with their desire to see Jesus killed. Now, Jesus was delivered over to the only government power who had the ability in that day to execute a death sentence. Remember, the Jews were in the land of Israel. They were in the promised land given to them by God, but they were under in that day the political and military control of the Roman Empire. And under the Romans, they actually had no power to pass out death sentences. For only a Roman-appointed leader was given the prerogative to pronounce death. This is why the Jews, 
answered as they did to Pilate when he mocked them in chapter 18. They responded in John 18, verse 31, by saying, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The Jews didn't have the right to put anyone to death, so they send Jesus off to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, Pilate, or Pontius Pilate, was the governor or the prefect of two regions, Judea and Samaria, to the north of it. And he was notoriously rude and harsh. He ruled from about A.D. 26 to 36, and he was terrible to the Jewish people, especially to the Jewish leadership. He, a Gentile, had actually been given the authority by Rome to appoint all of the Jewish high priests. So he had been given the right to declare who their religious leaders would be, and he's not even a Jew, he's the oppressor of the Jews, and you can imagine how well that was received. He was also known to have seized funds from the Jewish temple in order to build a Roman aqueduct, and he was eventually considered to be so cruel to the Jews that he was actually recalled and sent back to Rome. So this guy was not a decent fellow. If anyone ever tries to say, well, this was all the Jews' fault and it was not Rome's fault, they're mistaken. This was mankind's fault, demonstrated by some pretty good examples of how dark human beings can be. And so, off to Pilate, Jesus would go. In verse 2, they bound him. Just think of it. The Son of God was bound by mere sons of men. Then they delivered him over to Pilate, to whom Jesus would stand before, and to whom his final sentence would be pronounced. Christ's life was now under the control of a very rotten man. Or was it? That's our first fact. Jesus was condemned to death. And you might not know this. Or perhaps you may not yet have embraced this, but Jesus was actually condemned and even crucified for you. He did this for a lot of people, but also so that 2,000 years later, you could sit in an air-conditioned auditorium and hear of God's love for you, how Jesus, God's Son, took your sins upon himself, died on the cross, pain for your sins and rose again three days later in triumph and now if you will repent and turn from your sins and accept jesus as your savior and lord believing in him you will be forgiven and saved jesus did this for you please believe jesus that's our first fact fact number two jesus was excuse me, Judas was condemned by himself. Look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Judas had betrayed Jesus. I won't rehash the whole story, which we have already considered, but 
Judas seems to have wanted two things in his life. Number one, he wanted a revived Jewish kingdom with the kind of Messiah who would defeat the Roman oppressors while restoring Israel to the glory days of King David. He wanted an earthly political Messiah. He did not want the kind of Messiah that Jesus turned out to be. That was the first thing he wanted. Number two, he wanted financial comfort. He was greedy for gain. We know from the Bible that he stole from his friends and he sold Jesus away to his enemies for some very modest financial advancement. Judas entered into a partnership with the Jewish religious authorities. They gave him 30 pieces of silver and he gave them Jesus. He got some money and they received the private secluded whereabouts of his rabbi where they could arrest him by stealth. But now... Judas regrets his decision. Evidently, he didn't think things would become so serious as a death sentence, and he changed his mind, it says. This expression, changed his mind, is actually just one word in the Greek original, and it's similar to the word repentance, which we often see in Scripture. However, this word doesn't imply a change of heart which leads to a change of life, which is the very nature of repentance. Rather, this word merely refers to a wish for something to have been done differently, for something to be undone even, to have regret or sorrow over something. Judas regretted his decision. He wanted it to be undone. But this does not necessarily mean that he had a change of heart regarding the things that he valued and wanted most in his life. There's nothing here that tells us that he stopped wanting a restored Jewish kingdom as opposed to Christ's messiahship. And there's nothing that tells us here that he stopped loving monetary comfort. He may have given the money back, but that doesn't change the fact that he's a man who wanted money. And in his regret, he brought back that money given to him for his betrayal. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver and he said in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. And he knew that his betrayal now put Jesus on the path to the cross. Whether or not he had hopes of fixing things, we don't know. Probably he was simply trying to clear his own conscience for his rabbi was about to die because of what he himself did, and how could he live with himself? But the Jewish religious leaders responded with an obtuse reply that revealed deeply hardened hearts which were incapable of realizing their own culpability, their own guilt. In verse 4 they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, that sounds as bad in the Greek as it does in the English. Essentially, they're saying, that makes no difference to us. You deal with it. Instead of acting like the spiritual shepherds that they were supposed to be and pointing Judas to the merciful, forgiving God, they simply gave him a shoulder shrug. And it simply is astonishing 
But these men were so cold to, what's the, to what they were about to do here. What terrible men of human religion they showed themselves to be. And sadly, but rightly, it seems that they will feel this mistake for all eternity. However, Judas's suicide shows no sign of biblical repentance, in my mind. Repentance is a God-given change of heart from sin to God, which leads to a change of life. It is a God-given change of heart from sin to God, which leads to a change of life. It is a change of direction in life. It is to at one point go towards sin and then have God awaken you to realize that path of sin is rotten, it offends God, it's rebellion against God, and it deserves his judgment. And instead, to turn away from it and say, God's path is better. And by God's path, through the salvation provided by Jesus, I'm going to go in this path instead. That is repentance. It is the result of a godly grief that convicts the heart awakens the mind to God's righteousness and transforms a life until the day of final salvation. Which is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a godly grief a grief that God allows us to experience, which brings us to repentance. Godly grief leads to repentance, and it's very different from a worldly grief that only feels sorrow about circumstance and ends up only leading to death. There's feeling bad about the results of an action, and then there's feeling bad about what you've done to God in your action. That's a massive distinction between feeling bad about something you've done towards others or feeling bad toward the Lord and how you have interrupted the relationship with him. John Calvin wrote, true repentance is displeasure at sin arising out of fear and reverence for God and producing at the same time a love and desire of righteousness. Repentance, therefore, is far more than mere regret over actions. It is a new perspective about sin and a new perspective about God, and it leads inevitably to life change. But though Judas did declare his sin in verse 4, his resulting action, I think, shows that his change of mind was merely one of regret and not one of repentance. Now you might ask, Joe, what would God have done if Judas had pled for mercy and returned to follow Jesus after his death and resurrection, just like the other disciples did? It's a good question. I don't usually like answering hypotheticals, especially when they're hypotheticals about the Bible, but I do feel pretty confident about this one. I think... God would have very quickly forgiven Judas. He would have been restored to Jesus, and he would have been used by Jesus to advance his gospel. If Judas had truly repented 
and placed genuine faith in Christ for the Messiah that he is, and not some pipe dream Messiah that Judas imagined, then I have little doubt that he would have been truly forgiven and restored to God, because that is the kind of merciful God that God is. It defines him, mercy does. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. A man who has even done that, who looks to God and says, I have sinned. Jesus is my only hope. That man will be forgiven, just like the man who was next to Jesus on a cross mocked him and then said, you are righteous, and when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said to that thief on the cross, you today will be with me in paradise. God is merciful to sinners, period. But what Judas actually did was show a heart of unbelief and a spirit of no true repentance. He threw the money into the temple, and then he went and hanged himself. This is not the action of one who looks to a merciful God for mercy and grace. This is the action of a man riddled with guilt who won't accept the free offer of salvation that Jesus is about to provide in a few hours at the cross. Judas was condemned by himself. And so I urge you, my dear friends, who I might know well or who I might not know well today, I urge you, if you are considering or if you have considered or if you will ever consider suicide, to remember God is a God of unending love and mercy and grace. And his goodness far surpasses all of your problems, no matter how big they seem and feel. His son died for you because he loves you. Don't make the terrible, unalterable decision of rejecting his sweet kindness. You can be forgiven. Oh, dear friend, be forgiven. There is hope, even in the midst of how lost you feel. There is hope. So please look to a merciful God for hope. That's fact number two. Fact number three, it's what Matthew's been getting at this whole time here. The scriptures were fulfilled by God. Verse 6. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Though I'm not sure which law these men were concerned about here, the chief priests ironically took care not to break it. 
It's possible that they were concerned about some vague references in the law of Moses regarding what money was acceptable to be given to the Lord. But I think what's truly astonishing here is just how much these men missed the forest for the trees. In their blindness, these guys condemned the Son of God himself, and they are now handing him over to the Romans who are about to kill him. But they are here deeply concerned about not breaking the obscure item about temple gifts. They said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. And blood money it was, for it was money that was received through the work of murderous betrayal that ended up leading to the death of the betrayer. So in verse 7, they again took counsel and they acted this time buying a field where strangers could be buried. This potter's field was perhaps the valley of Hinnom, which was just west of Jerusalem, and at that time it was rich in clay, which was needed by makers of pots in that day. You couldn't go to Ikea. You had to have someone who took the clay and formed it and used fire and built a pot. So this clay, Valley of Hinnom, was used by those who make pots or potters. And this field, called throughout Matthew's day as the field of blood, became a place to bury strangers. So an unknown people, an unknown person comes into town or they come through Jerusalem and they end up dying there, that's where they would get buried. And all of this fulfills God's word. Everything we have seen thus far, in fact, everything we've seen so far in Matthew, all of it fulfills God's word. Verse 9 says that this fulfilled what had been spoken by the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. However, though parts of Jeremiah's prophecies are, I think, likely alluded to here, the bulk of what is recited in verses 9 and 10 is actually from a different prophet from the prophet Zechariah. So how do we reconcile this? Did, did Matthew make a mistake and record the wrong prophet? Why does verse 9 say that Jeremiah was the prophet here instead of Zechariah? Well, it was not unusual for the Bible's human authors to relate the fulfillment of Scripture by quoting several texts together which pointed together to one unified direction. They would take a bit of prophecy here, they would take a bit of prophecy here, they would bring them together, and they would show how they work together and are fulfilled in some way. Well, both Jeremiah and Zechariah are likely alluded to here. But, since Jeremiah was considered by most in that day to be the more major prophet, the more important one to the doctrines of the people of Israel, his name is the one that is mentioned here alone. And there is actually nothing unusual about how Matthew relates this to us. Now let's consider what these prophets wrote and understand the correlation between them and verses 9 through 10 in our passage. I thought about having you turn there with me, but I think it might be best just to have you listen. And if you'd like to look these up later, you can. But I'm going to read Jeremiah 19 verses 1 through 4. And then I'm going to read a couple more verses in Jeremiah 19 and try to connect this to our passage. 
Try to listen well to this. Jeremiah 19, 1 through 4. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go to the valley of the son of Hinoam at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, God tells Jeremiah, you shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Now listen to verses 10 and 11 of Jeremiah 19. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you, and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God tells the people of Israel in that day that he is going to bring judgment down upon them. And the symbol of that judgment is this pot, this flask. And just as that pot or that flask was broken, so God would bring destruction down upon Israel because they had forsaken him and chosen other gods. Here's the connection between this and Matthew chapter 27. God would bring judgment down upon Israel because they had forsaken him, and their destruction would be symbolized by a piece of pottery broken in the valley of Hinoam, the very place that would one day be purchased through the blood money used against God's own son. That's Jeremiah. Now listen to Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. This is what the Lord says to Zechariah. Zechariah speaks. He says, Then I said to them, to the people of Israel, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Zechariah had been a teacher. He'd been a shepherd to them, a pastor to the people of Israel, but they rejected his teaching they rejected the word of the Lord, and so God instructs Zechariah to go to the people of Israel and say, fine, you won't listen to me, give me the money that is due me, and I will stop being your teacher, essentially. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver, and so he went and threw that into the house of the Lord to demonstrate that their money was no good, for they had forsaken their God again. Here's the connection to Matthew 27. Just as the Israelites rejected God and Jeremiah's prophecy and 
Just as the Israelites rejected Zechariah as the good shepherd who was over them, so Jesus was now rejected for a minuscule amount compared to his actual worth. Rejected by the people of Israel. Not considered to be their good shepherd. They had forsaken him. They did not want him over them. And so here it all comes full circle. In Matthew 27, what he is relating is the prophesied rejection of God by Israel and its ultimate fulfillment by the Jewish rejection of Jesus, one who was valued poorly at only 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. And this was written, chapter 27, verses 9 and 10, to teach something profound, I think. What happened to Jesus was exactly as God declared, and the events leading to Christ's death were exactly according to his plan. Everything that happened here, from verses 1 through 10, and all the previous verses, and all the verses that are about to occur, all of it happened according to God's plan, and all of it came about according to God's path and way. I want to read one more passage on this note. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. And listen to what that passage says. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What the Bible is teaching us is that Jesus' actions in going to the cross is something that God had foreordained before he even created the world. And that all of the events, even the work of Pontius Pilate, even the words of Herod, even the ways that the Israelites sold him over to the Romans, all of it was part of God's plan. He used all of it according to his predetermined plan to bring about the salvation of his people. The scriptures were fulfilled by God. God declared it all beforehand. God brought it all about at his designed time, place, and way. And God accomplished it just as he designed to. God was fully in control. That's what we're to take here. So why does it matter to us? That God planned and was in full control of the events that led to the death of his son for sinners. Does this really even matter, all this talk about his sovereignty and his control? Perhaps you're even wondering whether I'm getting us lost somewhat in the theological weeds by spending so much time on this here. But the Lord through Matthew, if you've been following along, seems to go to great lengths to point out his great planning and control seemingly on every page of this gospel. And chapter 27 is no different. And I think 
that if God reveals something to be important like that in the Bible, then we should also consider it to be important. Furthermore, I am convinced that this reality is actually crucial for your life. Though much could be said in response, let me give two life-altering answers as to why God's full control of the events surrounding Christ's death is so important for you. First of all, God's control here shows the strength of God's providence over all things. As we have considered before, the doctrine of God's providence is His sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise provision for and guidance of everything He has created. And the reality that God both planned and accomplished each detail of Christ's sacrificial death reveals the full measure of His divine authority and power. My friends, here are two realities that you should always keep in mind whenever you go through any challenge. Twin realities, really, because they are so similar and because they go so tightly together. Two realities. Number one, reality number one, God works absolutely everything out according to his perfect will. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You've heard that everything happens for a reason. That's absolutely true. Everything happens for the reason that God intended it to be. Everything, absolutely everything, has been declared by God and comes about because of God's declaration. Because God has willed it to be. Now I know I'm going further down into the weeds. We're going to get there. God, God is always doing a trillion and one things all at the same time. Things that you and I know very little about. And all of it is done to bring about his ultimate perfect will. We don't see it all. We don't understand it all. But all of it is bringing out his perfect will. That's the first reality. The second reality is sweeter. Reality number two. God works absolutely everything out for the good of his people. He works absolutely everything out according to his perfect will, and God works absolutely everything out for the good of his people. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's not hyperbole. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Somehow, in some way, ways that we often don't understand in the hard moments, 
God is using everything that we experience for our ultimate, eternal good. In the trillion and one things that God is constantly doing without our knowledge, each and every one of those things is being done to both magnify His glory and to bring about the lasting good of His people. My parents are with the Lord. They're dead. They're with Jesus. They're spiritually alive, but they're dead. I don't like that. I've had kidney stones. You ever had those? I don't like that. I have felt relational issues with other human beings. That's very unpleasant. I don't like that. I have felt a thousand and one other things that I don't like. And yet all of those things, somehow, in some way, God is using for my ultimate, lasting, eternal good. Perhaps simply to make me cling to him like a little boy who clings to his dad. My friends, all of this should be welcomed news because it means good things for us. It means that all of the events of our lives are in the hands of a good master. You may be hedging and, and holding off on Jesus because you think, well, I don't want him to be my Lord because if he's my Lord, he might be hard or not good. But you miss it. He works everything out for your good. Everything he does to his people, Christians, is for their ultimate good. And it might seem hard in some moments, but ultimately, it's to make you like Jesus. It's to make you love Jesus. It's to make you one day see Jesus and say, I worship you because everything you've done has brought me to this point. It is all good because he's a good, good master. The one in control is not mean. The one in control is not cruel like Pilate, and he's not deceptive like the Pharisees. The one in control of all things, including your life, is one who is good. And this also means, if we're Christians, that we need never worry about unexpected accidents which might happen to us. Now, there's a lot of cliches that we throw around in our day. Most of them make Christians kind of roll their eyes a bit. But perhaps you've heard the expression, well, there are no accidents. Everything has a reason. And that's often said with insensitivity and not said well or in the right place, but it's actually true. There are no things that happened accidentally. All things happen to glorify God according to his great purpose, his great will, and all things happen to Christians for their ultimate, perfect, lasting, eternal good. We never need worry about unexpected accidents which may happen to us. God could strike me dead driving home today. That would be his will, and he would be good even in that. No matter what he does, no matter what comes our way, None of it is by happenstance. All of it is firmly in his grasp. Furthermore, this means that we can actually be confident that every circumstance in our lives will somehow be used by God for our greater eternal benefit. 
one of the ways that he makes me and you like Jesus if we know him in faith, if we're Christians. One of the ways that he makes us more like Jesus, he uses lots of ways. He uses the teaching of his word, he uses prayer, he uses the encouragement of other believers. But one of the ways that God uses to make us more like Jesus is the path of difficulty. Where we learn that we're not God and he is. And we desperately need him at every point in life. And even that comes from him. And in that, he is still good. So that's the first answer. The second answer is this. God's control here shows the depth of his commitment to save people. The reality that God both planned and accomplished each detail of Christ's sacrificial death reveals his unwavering zeal to save sinners. He determined before he even created this globe that he would make me and save me. And if you're a Christian, God determined before the world was ever founded to both make you and save you. And he has demonstrated that commitment by prophecies that point to his son. And when his son, who had been prophesied, arrives, he fulfills those prophecies in himself, goes to the tree, dies there shedding his blood, rise again in triumph because God fulfills his promise to us. He's that committed. He's committed not just for a few months or a few years. God is committed for centuries. For millennium, God is committed to the salvation of his people. My friends, this is joyous news because God's faithfulness to his ancient commitments means that he is forever trustworthy for our great salvation. Oh, my God, who went to all of that effort to bring about my salvation is not a God who's going to take it away. My God who went to all that effort to bring about my salvation is the one who also has just enough strength to keep me until the end. And he does for you. So just how in control is God? God is in perfect control of all things. And this is wonderful news. Because it means that we can find true salvation in a good, sovereign Lord. And that we can trust him in all things, in all days, in all ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God of such foresight and plan. For being a God of such commitment for being a God of such authority, power, and control. Thank you for being a God who planned out and saw the end from the beginning. And even though it was excruciating for your son, thank you, Jesus, for doing this for us. Oh, Lord, please help us to trust in you in the hard moments. And help us, Father, to delight in the salvation that you have long planned for us. Let me pray this in Jesus' name.